Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and today I get to welcome Dr. James Richardson to the show. Excuse me. It's going to be one of those voice days, and he is going to share with us why exponential growth is so powerful in building consumer brands. Now, on this podcast, I've been talking a lot about branding, whether it's personal, whether it's consumer, whether it's small business, whatever it is. Branding is important. So a bit about Dr. James Richardson. He is the founder of Premium Growth Solutions, which is a strategic planning consultancy for early stage consumer packaged goods brands. As a professionally trained cultural anthropologist turned business strategist, he has helped nearly 100 G CPG. CPG, what does that mean? I'll ask him. Uh, brands with their strategic planning, <laughs> we'll get to that, including brands owned by Coca-Cola, Venturing, and Emerging Brands, the Hershey Company, General Mills, and Frito-Lay, as well as other emerging brands such as Once Upon a Farm, I love that name, Dr. Squatch Soap, Proven Skin Care, Rebel Creamery, and June Shine Kombucha, say this for me, Kombucha, is that how you say that? Kombucha, I know it's a drink. Yeah. Okay, I've never had it. So James is the author of a great book, which I have, Ramping Your Brand, How to Ride the Killer CPG Growth Curve, which is a number one bestseller in business consulting on Amazon. I apologize. My voice is about to just go to the kitchen. It's about to leave. He also hosts his own podcast, Startup Confidential. Now, he is joining us today to share why exponential growth is so powerful in building consumer brands the top mistakes that consumer entrepreneurs make when starting out, what venture capitalist investors misunderstand about the consumer sector, growing fast online versus traditional retail. That's, I have big questions about that. Why public company alumni, alumni, I can't even stop today, struggle at consumers, alumni, yeah, struggle at consumer startups and the top three things that founders need to work on to manage fast-growing companies. James, it's good to have you here. And pardon my mistakes. We got started late. I couldn't get in. You couldn't get in. I'm a little bit rattled and my voice is leaving. So guess what? You're going to be doing all the talking, which is a good thing for a guest. Uh, Thanks for having me, Denise. In fact, I just got a SMS from your larynx and requested I do 90% of the talking. All right. I have no idea what's going on. I live in the southwest, <laughs> southwest Louisiana, and it is not uncommon for us to have four to six you know, seasons in one day. We're already at season three, and it's 10 o'clock in the morning, so my voice is taking a hit from it. It, it happens, and I'll just apologize. So where would you like to start? And I, you know, I feel silly, but I don't know what a CPG brand is. Well, you said it. Be, you said it sixty seconds before, and that's why I was chuckling. Consumer oh. package goods. <laughs> okay, that's what it is. For some reason, my brain did not connect that consumer pack. What are consumer package goods then? I'm asking yeah, for the audience. So I, I really do. don't know either. I know. I and I do. I do apologize to the audience, but they should actually know this term if they're in business. Um, basically, almost everything sold at Target is a CPG item. So if we break it down into language that you, you, um, we all understand as shoppers, you know, personal care, food, beverage, alcohol, uh, beauty items, you name it. What's different about my focus, what I think that um, what often gets lost though, I think, and one reason people don't, that term a lot is that the CPG world, the reason it has its own jargon that show hosts can't pronounce for good reason. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, sorry. Is that it, the reason that it does is that it, it's also referred to 
as uh, fast-moving consumer goods by investment bankers. And maybe you have a few listening to this show, who knows. Um, and the reason for the fast is that these are categories that depend um, for their, not only for their revenue and their cash flow, but they depend in terms of brand building on repeat purchase. So you're going to hear me talk a lot about that. Give, give me some so examples, if you would. I think I know what you're talking so, about. But. Yeah. So, like, if I have a favorite bag of chips, like we'll call Lay's. Lay's owns 85% of the potato chip category. That number really hasn't moved in the last 20 years because um, they're a very good company. Uh, so most people go buy Lay's, and they buy it. Um, a certain proportion of their, of their consumer base will buy it pretty much on a weekly basis. Right. So they're buying 50, 75 bags a year, the heavy users. Right. So that's what I mean by repeat purchase. What do I, what's the opposite of that? The opposite of that is a plastic Chotsky sold on QVC, 4 million units sold in 90 minutes, never sold. And, then, and it, all it is is like a kitchen, like a pot holder, or it's a kitchen gadget. Right. You'll never buy it again. Um, it was kind of a lark. I'm giving you an extreme example. Right. So there's a lot of one-offs product categories out there. A lot of them are just tools in your house. And the likelihood that you're going to go back to that brand again is pretty low because guess what's going to happen? It's, it's you can't five find years it. To break. Hey, you can't find right. it. Right. It's going to take five years to break and the world has moved on, Denise. <laughs> you don't remember what it was and the yeah. company may not even be in business. Well, actually, I can I can speak to that because I have a friend of mine gave me this wonderful food chopper. It's a little bowl, and you 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 throw your onions in it, and it came from QVC. What I didn't realize that I had the extra one of my bowls just split in half, and I I mourned. I stood at the kitchen counter, and I think I wept a little bit because I love that thing. What I forgot was that there was an extra bowl. whatever you want to call it, in the back of the cupboard. And I finally remembered that after I scoured QVC because I've had this thing for 10 years, and of course they didn't have it again. So I was going to have to go somewhere else and find one that I was already predisposed to not like because it wasn't the one that I love when I finally remembered that I had it. But I completely understand what you're talking about because QVC, they're like, what? (laughs) That's been gone for years. So those aren't – I get it. Yeah, I mean, it's – if you were to do a historical study of QVC, because it's actually started as home shopping in the 80s, started, right. so it's been around for 30, 30, 35 years. If you, if you look, I bet if you did a mathematical study of the brands that home shopping network featured adjusted throughout the entire 1990s, not a single one of those products is for sale today. And you know what? I know. The, the, owners, don't care because, the owners don't care because they made their millions, but it's just a different business model. It's a flash-in-the-pan model of consumer goods selling. And that's not the world I'm in. The world, and it doesn't build brands, Denise. Nobody remembers that. No, and I couldn't tell you what the brand was. I knew what it was, <laughs> and I went looking that's for correct. what I thought it was, correct. but I still, those, right? The brand, I, I couldn't tell you. Those are what we call product-led businesses, and it's oh. the only thing that they're interested in. It's not that, they're, it's not that the products are all bad. I, I don't want to be that snarky. Um, but because uh, I haven't had a beer yet, but I think the reality is some of them are interesting. It's just that the business model is I just want to get my five million now, and I did design something interesting. I don't want to run a business; I just want my whim, right? It, it actually, since we're on a podcast, you know, that's about fifty percent of the business podcast, as far as I can tell, are flash in the pan, get rich quick franchise real estate shows. <laughs> yeah, know, I see that as well. It is not a world I'm in because when you build a brand that becomes $100 million in revenue, $500 million in revenue, and when you get to Lay's, your $4 billion in annual revenue on potato chips, this not only takes time, but it, it means you have to embed the product experience in people's ordinary daily existence. That is a journey that takes a lot of work. It just doesn't happen. It also takes time, Denise, and, you know, people who can sell 2 million units on TDC, and that's their whole business strategy, yeah, I don't think patience is their middle name. 
No. And from what I'm hearing from you is that revenue, I was really upset when I couldn't replace my little broken thing, but fortunately I, I did because I still had one. That, but honestly, I mean, I was, I was, I even went to Amazon and I hate Amazon. I needed one of those things. Who wants to cut onions with a knife? Nobody. But here's the thing. From what I'm hearing from you is revenue means repeatable. You have to be able to repeat and continue to get people to buy your product and love your product, share your product, and actually be very loyal to your product. That's correct? That's a- yeah, that's how you build a brand in, in, in consumer packaged goods because the okay. – here's the thing. The, um, the object itself, like a bag of potato chips, Denise, does not have a lot at stake in it, really. I mean, it's a potato chip. Um, right. You may eat them every bit. You, you may eat them every no, bit. I do not. So what Just that, so you know, but, I don't. Yeah, and some, right. And, some, and, and the reality is tens of millions of people did. And, and, right, they have developed a habit, some might call it an addiction, but I don't want to get into that thorniness, um, in which they crave it, right? And so the hand goes in the bag on a habitual basis. It's that habit which allows you to generate um, a stable consumer packaged goods brand. Uh, the key, the world that I work in, though, is not just about, because I don't work with the companies. I did that for I did that for 15 years. Get tired of it. Um, and honestly, most of their brands are structurally in decline because there's not any growing interest in those kinds of product experience. Like they've capped out their absolute sales volume. It, it, they're just trying to hold steady most of them. Oh, I lost you. Are you still there, James? You disappeared. James, I can't hear you at all. Oh, sorry. there you are. Okay, you're back. <laughs> uh, the power of habitual purchase has a different function for for the clients that I work with in the world that I'm in. Because think about it: if you were to launch a brand in a, your local supermarket, nobody's heard of it, right? You haven't done much advertising. Uh, you have a certain social network that knows it's exi- of its existence, right? Maybe you've done some of marketing to specific social groups in a local city. But they're the only people who know that it exists. So everybody's going down the aisle in salty snacks. They're walking right by your fancy tortilla chip. Uh, they're not and, looking for a new item. And right. so they don't care, right? And they're not, they're not, they're not really going to even notice it because they're zooming in. They're going down that aisle and they're looking just for the four brands the four brands that they've ever purchased and liked are the ones that stick out. And not only that, James, so, but they're at eye level. Yeah. You know, I've, we, right, I live exactly. in southwest Louisiana. So, you know, there's yeah. a lot of great cooks down here. I'm one of them. I love to cook. But there are a lot of brands that pop up, and they're excellent. But they're at the bottom. They're like knee level. Nobody right. looks down there. And then they wonder why they can't oh. get any any traction while well, nobody's ever heard of you and you're not at I and that's why right and you're and that's because in the supermarket industry um, that middle shelf placement is generally paid for it's like oh, a rental fee I didn't know that so yes it's called slotting fees it's a dirty little secret of the supermarket trade um, and uh, and that unfair advantage works against anyone starting out in terms of getting visibility but here's the thing. It's beyond the shelf visibility. That's a big problem. But that presumes that you were actually, um, as a new brand, that the smart strategy was just to pick any random person coming down the aisle who could see you, which isn't really true. Because the average person going down the aisle at a Kroger or a Piggly Wiggly, they don't want a new brand. They're happy with the brands they have. And this is the challenge that, that my clients face, is they have to find the people who are dissatisfied. Oh, Okay. And then they have, to, they have to have now they have to have the thing, the product experience that will solve that dissatisfaction, and that dissatisfaction could be very latent and subconscious, like they may not actually be able to totally articulate it. Then they have to go buy it, and then they have to remember it to buy it again. 
there's just so many ways for that whole process of adoption to break down for a new brand in categories, Denise, that aren't where every bag itself doesn't have a lot at stake. Now, the, the consumption of a category like chips or um, hummus or soft drinks, that category behavior in the home may actually have a lot at stake for an individual consumer um, because they're consuming you know, three soft drinks a day and they're, they're rotating between two or three brands. So the category may be really important to them. And often if you do interviews with people, that's what they talk about. Then you have to really, really probe to get at brand. (laughs) It's not the biggest thing for them. The the folks that I work with, they have to actually do brand build in a special kind of way because they have to be 100 times more memorable than the average new product if they want to get any kind of traction. If they want to be able to get people to to add them or switch to them and develop a habitual habit of consuming their specific brand. And that behavior, as a social scientist, I say that's a real, that's a lot to ask when you're not selling life insurance, for which there's a ton of, there's a ton at stake. There's a ton at stake emotionally at a scale that a potato chip bag can never hope to pretend to plant. And I'm, I understand that, and I'm not a potato chip eater. I just, I'm not. Never, I've never been much for eating, you know, empty calorie snacks. But that leads Good. me to a completely different thought process. I've, you know, listen. I love having my groceries delivered to my my steps at, on Saturday morning. I don't have to go anywhere. I'm an introvert. It works for me. But what I have found, and I've noticed this for a long, long time, is that a lot of products, like store products, let's use Walmart, I'm finding that if, and about the only chips I do like are the the Lay's uh, kettle chips, and even then I find them too salty, so I don't eat them but maybe twice a year. But I'm finding that if I use the Walmart brand, it's the same exact thing. So I'm guessing it, it is. It's the same exact thing, and it's a buck cheaper. So I'm guessing that a lot of these big companies, and we're using Lay's, will license their product to other, you know, is a way to get them into people's hands, but it's not their, their brand. Am I way off base here? So a little bit. Yeah, that was more common in the 19s. That was more common in the 1960s to 1980s when retailers, oh, okay. when retailers, including Walmart, didn't look at they didn't look at store label as a meaningful source of absolute penny revenue or dollar revenue. Unfortunately, today it's a massive source of profit. So most chains micromanage almost every single product that they produce. And they work with these third-party manufacturers for most products. They're called co-manufacturers. They're, they're basically family-run okay. businesses. Some are That's huge. what I'm looking um, for. And okay. they, so a company like Walmart today is generally – now, in the case of Lay's, I wouldn't know because, uh, you know, on pain of death, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be thrown in a uh, black van <laughs> and taken away out of the country if I it's knew and revealed on radio you. in a public forum. Um, but, yeah, so – Either I don't know or I can't say, but they don't, you know, it's unlikely that Walmart at this point in like something as important as potato chips for their great value brand would be um, using Lay's uh, because it's not that hard to actually mass. Well, it's not that hard to find a co-man to make a kettle chip in 2021. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Because I use their, you know, their particular brand. I find that oftentimes it's exactly the same or sometimes it's better. And it's, you know, less expensive. Yeah. So I really like, you know, the company, the, the retailer that has nailed private sort of store label simulation is Aldi. Uh, that's um, a store I've never been they, exposed to. I think yeah, that's a, I can, what, a West Coast store. It's not here where I'm at. Uh, yeah, maybe it isn't in Louisiana. It's all over the South no. and Southeast. But, um, yeah, never seen but, one. But uh, Aldi is a pure... Are all these a German-run private label store, and they they are masters at simulating processed foods by common ones. They work really, really hard. They work pretty hard, uh, and they they have a knockoff of Lay's that really, honestly, I don't think could. I don't. I think it would survive a blind taste test. 
Interesting. Well, so does the Walmart brand, I'm telling you. I actually, just for fun, I had guests over and I bought a bag of each. And nobody could tell the difference. We tried. Nobody could tell the difference. In fact, I'm going to really tick off Lay's here, but, you know, most people seem to like the Walmart brand better. It was crunchier. That's important for a chip. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. Okay, so let's get off of Walmart. <laughs> I'm not, you know, saying, okay, you have to go to Walmart. I just happen to like it because they deliver. So there's that. So where else do we, and I didn't mean to kind of take over, but, you know, it's it's important to me to figure out how these things are coming to us, why they're coming to us, why we get so loyal to the companies that we get loyal to. And you're explaining that beautifully it just never occurred to me that there was you pay for a slot at eye level i've always been aware of in caps and eye level products i mean how can you not be but i didn't realize that there was this whole thing behind it yeah so um you know big companies the big brands they have built their brands over decades you know they started off as little one-off product lines no one ever heard of them the same thing that my early stage clients do today but you know after 80 years and some domination at the shelf if you're visible everywhere you're going to have a lot of memorability a lot of familiarity and a lot of people will have tried you Uh, in my book my recent book i actually (laughs) ran a little one-off poll and you know found that 70 percent 75 percent of americans adults alive today have eaten at least have eaten Doritos once. Right? That means seventy five percent not only have heard of the name, but have actually remembered the experience. Hmm. That's that's power, right? So that it takes is. time to, to that takes decades to build up that level of power. If you don't have that, then how the heck do you get any market share? I mean how do you get any kind of attention at all? And how do you not become a QDC early stage brand. And let me tell you, there's a lot of those. So, um, you know, if you look at scanner data from cash registers, and there's companies like Nielsen that sell that, any given year in the U.S., there might be anywhere from two to 3,000 entire new product lines. I mean, brands, sorry, trademarks launched in the United States across the, uh, across the food and beverage world. So thousands of, comp- of brands are launching, and most of them fail within three to five years. They're just gone. And they're all from entrepreneurs, almost all of them. Uh, big companies, because they have dominance, rarely launch new brands. Right? That's not their <laughs> business focus. Their business focus is to defend what they have. Right. But my world, and, my world, and when they world, do, like Zero or whatever the heck it was, that failed yeah, pretty right. badly. I think I don't. Yeah, they're generally. Uh, they're generally. I mean, there's a, I could go down a rabbit hole as to why those most of those new product launches don't really last, even if they sell a lot in the beginning. Um, but, you know, it's funny. The um, One of the things about those failures that's worth bringing in to this conversation is the fact that those – there's a difference between creating a product launch that is kind of a gimmick, and it's almost like an advertisement. Uh, the one that just happened this week is Peeps and Pepsi. What the is it? Pepsi. Oh God! Have you had you mean the, those? The oh God. No, yeah, no, no! I don't eat sugar. I, so take, I really so don't they eat sugar. Can't stand it. <laughs> and I think Pepsi Peeps ought to be shot. Peeps. They're horrible. Uh, Peeps licensed the flavor. Pepsi licensed the flavor from Peeps, and they put it in a gimmicky line. It's a limited edition. Oh God! The yellow camp. Anyway, I need so to that, go brush my teeth kind of, right now. Just thinking yeah, about that makes me kind of think. That's the kind of new product launch that sells well as a one-time QVC type one-off, right? They'll probably sell 50 million cans of that, um, and it'll never sell again. But, oh, yeah. huh. and they'll never sell again, and they don't care, right? Because it, it was another 50 million. They may have pulled some people who don't drink Pepsi anymore, who just want to try it. And so that's oh, a whole class of product launch at big companies, which is essentially a it's either fad-driven or gimmicky. And it can actually work financially. But, again, that's the luxury of a multi-billion-dollar multinational that can operationalize that kind of gimmick and do it at scale and make money off it and not be concerned, Denise, whether it lasts. The people I work with, like, their whole life savings isn't there. 
they, this thing has to last, and yet most early-stage CPG brands fail, and part of it is that is not just because they're on the bottom shelf. It's also because, A, they haven't actually designed something that's going to create memorability. Right? It's not innovative enough, and it's not steering towards a large enough audience um, that's going to create habit and the order of millions of new people adopting the thing. And most entrepreneurs aren't doing the out-of-store work necessary to build awareness with the right people. Because for every category I've ever studied, and I've, I've worked in almost 100 different CPG categories, um, studying consumer behavior, you know, shopping patterns, purchase patterns, and there's always a group of people um, in every category who are dissatisfied with the incumbents, right? And they are open to trying a new brand, a new product experience to, fit, to solve that problem that they're feeling. And it could be too much sugar. It could be too much fat, whatever it is. Too much sugar is a big one right now, to be honest. Oh, I would think. I can't stand person. sugar. Yeah. And, and we, tried it, we tried it in the late 90s and early 2000s with synthetic. Well, we've tried since the 50s with some industrially synthesized lab molecules to fool the time, right? But now oh. there's a whole group of people, and they're the audience for my clients' businesses. Um, and I look at them as, I call them upmarket consumers, but they're, they're really college-educated folks with you know, six-figure household incomes, about 40 million U.S. households. And these are the folks that are really, because of their education primarily, they're, they're very aware of sugar reduction and the fact that they need to do that. So they're leaving the brands they grew up with and they're trying to find brands that have, that taste great, but have less inherent sugar. And they don't want the fake additives. Like they don't want Diet Pepsi. So um, there are people building huge businesses, Denise, by just addressing a simple need like, just take most of the sugar out of my yogurt. Right? And what's interesting is that I talk about it in my, my book, Ramping Your Brand, that, you know, Siggy's Yogurt, which started in Manhattan, literally the island of Manhattan in 2006, for, for what today would be about $4 a cup. <laughs> um, you know, you can get a Happy Meal, I think, for them. Probably. So, so, <laughs> no. so in today's dollars, this was a super boutique, basically it's pretentious. It was potentially pretentiously priced yogurt, but you know, in Manhattan, everything costs a ton. So, and this yogurt, because it was Icelandic, had almost no sugar in it, because that's a traditional way. You don't oh. put a lot of flavor. You know, you don't put a lot of added sugar in Iceland when they manufacture yogurt when they mass manufacture. So it, it's I a traditional recipe. Yeah, it's a traditional recipe called skier, and it just has very little sugar, even when you make it with vanilla or strawberry. And so he was just – he literally was – the founder was Icelandic. He was also a well-educated management consultant before he started his business. So he had money to start it, but he also had just this inherent interest in promoting his own country's yogurt. And it really took off. It took off with, you know, with a certain group both of Manhattan and females who are obsessed with maintaining their thinness, right? And so they, Denise, were willing to trade off some sweetness in their yogurt every morning to get that lower sugar consumption, right? Now, when the average person was encountering Siggy's, because it spread in Whole Foods primarily, first very carefully, they... Um, you know, the average person would try it, and they'd immediately have to go reach for, like, the honey <laughs> or, oh. or the sugar bowl. Because it just, it was, it was it's super sour. Yeah, I would like it. it. I've and, never tried it. I'm I telling well, you, it's went on my list. Right. So your palate's probably started to adapt, right? And a lot of these people that I just broad-brushed as this 35 to 40 million American, sort of college-educated affluent crowd, they have slowly been desuring their diet and they're getting used to less and less sweet foods and drinks and you name it. Um, and so now, you know, what happened was that 
The reason I bring up ciggies is not just because of the low sugar trend, because then they were urban. It's because the way that it spread was with, with, with specific consumers who were price insensitive. It could have been $10 a cup with the, with the women I'm talking about. They didn't care. So, um, so they didn't care about the money. They wanted to solve the issue, right? And they were willing to make a trade-off on sweetness, which is a cultural trade-off. Right, because most Americans think yogurt is essential. I mean, back then it was. I call I I make fun of it as a dairy sort of candy industry. Um, when Siggy's came out, the average yield play. I'll probably get hate mail from someone that General knows. Um, you know, had as had it, it had as much sugar as a can of Coke. Now they okay. radically reduced the sugar. They had yeah. it. They pulled the sugar way down in yield play since then. Because of all these trends, right? I'm talking like, gosh, 15 years ago. So, but I did the web research. It was amazing when you looked at the, the old nutrition facts. Now. So it was this super sweet, like dairy food. And that's what we ate. That's what we all thought in America yogurt was. But Europeans always made fun of it. The, the stuff isn't yogurt. It's garbage. Um, so you have to make that trade-off. So who's going to make the trade-off today? Are you going to, you know, if you're if you're used to yogurt tasting almost like a, a candy bar, then are you going to have a truly like sour yogurt? No, you're not going to just switch because behavior in food is, um, if we were to compare it to other categories, uh, even though each can doesn't have a lot of its stake, there's this weird subconscious. Um, habituation to brands and product experiences and, and sensory experiences that develops with people. And it's very slow to change. And the reason it's slow to change is that, and I'm putting on my anthropologist hat here, is you walk around anywhere in the world and people's food traditions or food habits are slow to change because food has always, in human experience, signaled social identity. It's like one of the core daily experiences that reminds you who you are without words. That's the point. Right. So yeah. if you were to, de- like if you, if you, if I were to conduct an experiment, I could create an experiment that is an evil experiment, a mad scientist experiment. And I bet you know, I took a thousand random American adults and I pay, you know, say I'll pay them money to do this experiment and I will come in and I will completely change the sensory experience in like 10, the top 10 categories they consume on a daily basis in food and beverage, I'll change it every three days. I'll just go into their, they'll sign up, and I'll go into their fridge, and I'll just switch, switch it all out. I guarantee you those people will be completely stressed out and anxiety-ridden within two weeks. Oh, I get that. Right. Like I said, I live in southwest because Louisiana, it, and too, food is yeah, our gift. This too, is how we show love. No, 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 no. We cook for you. Right, right. So if you were, so if you, if you were to go in there and do that mean, evil intervention and, and manipulate people's food experiences on a hyper-rapid change cycle like that, which makes no sense, um, I guarantee you, you'll create mental illness. Oh. So food, food, is, Scott, food is very resistant to change. <laughs> so the fact that these women were willing to go from yo play, and a whole bunch of them were eating that, to cities. But it was very suggest, clear what, suggest, what the upside was, the way you explained it. Well, you, yeah, but remember who they, these people were. These people were models. They were actors. Oh, these were people gotcha. on television. These were people who had a lot at stake in, in not visibly gaining five pounds to a, in front of a social audience. So their approach to weight management is basically insane compared to most people. And that massive... Massively niche behavioral driver is what, what got them over the hump to do the crazy thing, and the crazy thing was to eat yogurt that wasn't sweet. <laughs> okay, now I'm following. Then, I, I wondered where this was now, going to lead. So, I thought so, I got it. So this is the problem. Yeah, so the funny thing is that most entrepreneurs don't have the patience, and they may or may not have the capital to manage the cash flow to wait for a brand like Siggy's to get to that group, grow, it'll max it out because there's only so many women who have that orientation to weight management, and it's not a lot. 
right? Um, then develop word of mouth to get to another group. And another group is going to be a group who's not predisposed as much to chase. They're not willing to chase off that, trade off that sensory experience because they're not as motivated around weight management. So what do they need? They need, they need a cultural argument. And that cultural argument comes from those early adopter females and the media who followed it, who then start to get out to a larger group of people and say, look, it's not going to taste like your regular yogurt, but you've got to give it a try. And the funny thing is that, and so that will induce some trial, right? And it, but my point here is that it takes time when you have a real innovation like that. And it took Siggy's almost 10 years to start growing really exponentially. And most of that had to do with that sensory barrier. But guess what? They had no competition. Ah, that that's entire ten year ride, there was like nobody chasing it. Because why? Because everything I just described is totally insane for like a marketer at Pepsi. You would that kind of strategy would get you fired if you proposed hmm. it to the senior executive. And that's where budgets are wrong. Because they're not gonna wait for you. Right, and they're heavily invested in sugar, so you have that as well. Well, yeah. It's just not their yeah, market. So they don't want to, yeah. Right, so like at General Mills, it's challenging. You know, they, they did the sugar yo play, but they spent 15 years doing it because they couldn't afford – if they took all the sugar out at once, they would have, they would have made a tiny group happy and lost 50% of the customers. <laughs> so, Interesting. So the problem is people, people – the average person who consumes a food or beverage brand, they don't want the product to change. And if it's ingested into their body as, as human beings, we don't want it to change because it's part of our identity. And it's, it's, it's literally part of our mental stabilization process as humans is that we, we have certain habits that don't change. We have enough, enough random change in the world. We don't need to inject it into our diet. So it takes a long time to scale up an audience that will create a $100 million, $200 million brand. If you're doing something as innovative as I just described, you know, Siggy's is now a $200, $300 million brand owned by a European conglomerate. So they want. It's in practically every grocery store. It's in Walmart, right? And it's continuing to attract new people. So well, it just attracted me. I'm going is, to try it. Yeah, so the challenge is that a lot of entrepreneurs that I encounter, they aren't they underestimate how long it's going to take to build the enthusiasm, the word of mouth amongst that initial group. And for a lot of brands, if there's a good innovation, there's going to be a geeky group. Um, and they underestimate how long it's going to take. And they give up or they run out of money. Is this so, why when, when we were talking at the very top and I was listing some of the things that we're going to chat about, is this why public company alumni, I always want to say alumni, alumni, whatever it is, struggle at consumer startups yeah. because they don't know that this is a long slog. They can't just get in there and make a whole bunch of money and then think people are going to continue to buy their stuff. Is that kind of what we're talking about? You got it. Uh, uh -huh. But I'll make it more concrete. I'll make it more, yeah. more concrete. And this is a this is a growing thing is that there are people who they don't enjoy working at a big bureaucracy at General Mills or Pepsi. <laughs> Can't imagine what. But they don't they don't enjoy it because uh, it's highly political and you know it's hard to see a lot of impact for what you're doing as an individual employee at those companies. Uh, so then they'll go and they'll meet people. It's easier to meet the startups now because they're all over the Internet. So you go and reach out to them and you see if you can become their director of marketing or something. Um, the problem is you're used to getting like 185000 plus boutique benefits package. The startup's not going to give you anything like that. In fact, they may ask you, they may ask you to work for 40000 plus equity in the company, stock. So the stock then pins you in the future. Like, well, if we can make this work, you know, in 10 years we'll sell it off and you'll become a leader. But right now, you're going to make them. <laughs> and that's, how, that's the cash reality of early-stage companies that are below, like, you know, $25 million in sales. Um, and that's 95% of them. So, you know, 
people are, they may, may cognitively tell themselves, oh, yeah, I can handle that. I could, I could reduce my income for a few years. But they're not really understanding that it's 10 years, Denise. <laughs> I would think <laughs> because nothing happens overnight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just yeah, not so, going to happen so in two years. I can't tell you. I literally, one of my early clients, when I went out on my own, one of my early clients, they uh, literally, uh, the guy thought he had to hire all these uh, senior people from big companies, alumni, because he figured, well, they, they had MBAs and they went worked at all these big prestigious firms, so they must be the technical functional experts I need, right? Very, I mean, that's easy to fall into that trap. Um, now, mind you, none of these people have worked, worked on an early stage company. None of them grew a business. They were just like working in large bureaucracies that are defending massive business. Anyway, so he brings all these people in thinking he solved his big problem, right? <laughs> and all they wanted, all they're doing, and, and then he finds out that they're just super impatient, right? So they want, I literally sat in a meeting with one of these guys and at the lunch break, this is a paid session, they hired me to come in. And at, during the lunch break, I'm sitting there clawing my eyeballs out because I'm like, oh, my God, can I make it through the day with these these arrogant bureaucrats who have taken over this guy's startup? So during the lunch break, I'm stuck in the room with the head of marketing. Everyone else is out of the room doing whatever, checking their cell phones. And the guy literally turns to me and he's like, Jazz, yeah, I know. I understand that your exponential growth rate is true. I understand that, that's mo- that your research says that's the most reliable path to scale, but we don't have that kind of time, man. Really? And I just and I just said and I just I sat there, I'm like, God, this guy's straight from Central Casting. We don't have that kind of time. First of all, the pronoun wasn't correct. You really meant I. <laughs> Second of all, that was clearly a frustration at how underpaid he thought he was. Ah. Uh. And for, and and thirdly it's the arrogance of a big public bureaucrat who's used to a multinational company that assigns huge budgets. Um, and people have tons of resources, and there's lots of power, right? To think, that, to think that some guy who spends years doing research to find the dominant path to scale then goes and writes a book at it is both right, but I can ignore that because I'm so great that I'll be the exception. And get it done in two years. <laughs> that what? doesn't work. He I qu- take it. He quit. He quit six months. <laughs> so. Well, and you know and he was coming. That, no, but here's the thing: that brand is still around. That early stage brand I cannot name is still around, but it's not even a hundred million dollars yet. It's climbing up the ramp at the normal pace, which isn't that quick. Because when you grow exponentially, Denise, off a small off a small base. I mean, you open up a spreadsheet. It takes a while. It takes seven to ten years, minimal. Well, I believe that. So that leads me to my, <laughs> my next question about consumer entrepreneurs. When they're starting out, yeah. was, was he a consumer entrepreneur, the guy who started this company? And did he have to really be kind of mind-trained or retrained to say, we're not going to, you know, get out there and Google's going to buy us. You know, I'm thinking I'm a techie. So, you know, everybody's always trying to make something that Google will buy or Apple will buy or somebody will buy it. That's all they, that the only reason they're building it is so it can be resold. But this is not what we're talking about here. So I'm guessing that your, your man who created this must have had some sense that this was going to be what I call a long game. Eventually, well, once actually, he got no, through with him, I'm sure he did get that. Well, he does. He does now. Um, um, but it took. It actually took like another two years after the session I held with him for it to really sink in. Numbers. Um, you know, but I, I, yeah, I worked with him. Yeah, once the math became clear, couldn't deny it anymore. The individual mm-hmm. I'm talking about was a finance guy. He's a finance guy, so he actually had a lot of money. And I think that's the problem: it's the possession of too much money gives people this illusion of power over human behavior in consumer packaged goods. And I just ranted to you all about the fact that people don't have any, don't wake up and say, God, I want to retool my whole diet today. Let's go. No, they want the same damn <laughs> well, thing. We kinda, they want exactly we the do, same but thing. But they want we're not to going do. to. Yeah. Uh, we, we think, okay, I'm no, going to do well, something different today, but we won't. 
Yeah, give me a break. Very unlikely. Huh? I try. So what? What? Yeah. What? The people who change their diet, Denise, they get involved in specific kind of social world pressure to make specific category level changes is basically more or less. You might call it fascist if you weren't a social scientist and just understood that, yes, there's no violence here. This is just people caving to a norm, right? But if you're hanging out with triathletes three times a week, I guarantee you your diet will change. <laughs> if you hang out, if you, if you take a, teacher, if you take a yoga, yoga teacher training course, which takes about eight to 12 weeks, I guarantee your diet will change. If you are college educated and you become pregnant for the first time, I guarantee that your diet will change. Mm -hmm. But those are all specific. There are specific examples of either times in life, life stages, or specific social worlds in which once you embed yourself in and now you have something at stake in being accepted as a member, you're going to have to start orienting to their norms. And that's the social science behind getting people to, to do something crazy, which is to go from yo play in 2006 to something that tastes like um, basically stuffing sour cream in your mouth. Right, right. And, you know, for me, I can't believe it's not butter. Oh, my God, it's not butter. Look, I live in the deep south. We cook with butter. In fact, we use it. it you, your husband... <laughs> can tell if you really want him gone because, you know, you're saying, honey, would you like more butter with that biscuit? Can I give you some butter? We're really trying to kill you. So just be careful when you're watching. It's not, I'm telling you, it's not detectable in the autopsy, except you got really heavy. You were happy, but we, we were killing you. But I'm telling you, don't tell me that I can't believe it's not butter. Taste anything like anything other than oil. It's garbage. But that's, See, that's an example of something where – and this, that story's been lost, you know, how a brand like that spread in the 1970s and 80s. But that was another era's marketing effort. Oh. Another context of weight, it was in another context of the early decades of weight management when people didn't, people didn't care what processing tricks were played to get them the benefit they wanted, right? And so – you know, that's just an older version of basically the same dynamic, which is how do we maintain weight or lose weight by altering our diet? And that's actually one of the biggest areas of brand building today in food and beverage, um, and it probably always will be because there is a there's, – um, there's just a massive cultural machinery in the United States around weight control, weight loss, weight maintenance, um, and that, that allows marketers so many opportunities to present themselves as the next new thing. I'm going to guess it's not working. Have you looked around? I mean, everybody's heavy. At most everybody I see, small children, breaks my heart. I mean, I see more well, fat kids these days than ever before. And, you know, they'll see these as, oh, kids are starving. Really? Look at them. I don't think they're starving. They may be eating trash food, but they're not hungry is my point. But... It, yeah, I think weight weight solutions are maybe not working all that way. How about this? Stop eating the garbage and take a walk. Go outside. <laughs> so That's I, a new uh, brand. Yeah, I mean, Stop I, eating, go outside. My, That's a new brand. I've actually, years ago, I did some social science research um, at the company I was working at on, with a colleague on this, and the, the answer was um, – had more to do with about the availability of processed foods and the fact uh, that um, the, and what I mean by availability, I mean the social availability, not the distribution. So what happened is the breakdown of, of gatekeeping of calorie intake in the United States. And we all watched it erode and just kind of said nothing about it. Um, and it really took off in the 80s, late 80s. Uh, so now more than half of calories are going through unregulated snack occasions in which you just random hands go into the fridge and just take whatever they want whenever they want. And, you know, in your in your grandparents' generation and my grandparents' generation, that just didn't happen. No, it did not. You it ate your never, meals, and if you didn't eat them, you went hungry. That's right. There were, yeah. Look, when I was so, a kid growing up, I we didn't have a lot of money. 
So snacking was not an option. It it wasn't, you know, the time of, of the decade or the the century is just, it was a money thing. And we weren't fed right. sugar, So which for me is good That's because correct. I That's really correct. detest it. But to this day, I don't run and grab a snack. If I'm going, if I'm really hungry and I need something, I'll grab a banana. That's it. There you go. Well, you're... You sound like a health food person. Uh, I Um, would say so. I'm not overly (laughs) consumed with it, and I do cook with butter. I love my butter. But, you know, I think you have I know. And see, this is why I don't watch fads. (laughs) I just can't be bothered. I can't keep track. But, But the thing is, I know what my body requires, and I don't give it a bunch of garbage, which I think is something that as humans these days, We've just given up on that. So one of the things that I've learned is that, you know, the, the, we do have a, we've developed a bit of a, of a single-minded, obsessive solutions sort of culture in the United States where every personal problem that we might have, we're looking for them, this one thing. Um, that we can then obsessively execute on, uh, and it will magically solve this much more complicated thing, and it never works. No, and it has I mean, to be done thing. overnight. Yeah. Overnight, it has to happen well, right now, well, which is ridiculous. Well, that would be fine because then they'll wake up and realize it did work. The problem is that we actually believe that we should persist in this single-minded thing for a couple oh. of years, and so we actually, we actually. We actually distract ourselves from really stepping back and saying, well, what's the real problem? Is the problem that I selected Lay's potato chips? The fact that I can, that whenever I, I get hungry, I feel like I should actually stop the hunger. I mean, that itself is a new thing that started about 20, 25 years ago as a mass phenomenon. This idea that I shouldn't feel hungry at all. Because I remember growing up, I and mean, it was perfectly normal to feel hungry for two to three hours before dinner, and, and I didn't oh, yeah. scream at my mother for snacks. That's I didn't cool. go scream at my mother for food. I mean, we were yeah. starving at school. Like the hunger. Yeah, and that was totally normal, and no one uh, called child services. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's just like, it was, but now it's like everybody, adult, kids, everybody. Oh, the slightest bit of hunger up here, boom, three snacks. So that's a, see, that's a decision mm. you make as a society. Right. That that's not okay anymore. Then the minute you do that, you're setting yourself up for obesity out of society. Drink water. Seriously, if you're hungry, grab a bottle yeah. of water. Well, I think also it's not a coincidence that that discomfort with hunger pains also coincided with our mass overuse of painkillers. You're kidding. I yeah. would have never gone down that road. Yeah. Yeah, ibuprofen, all the way to opioids. You know, they took off as mass market drugs along the same time. You know, so part of the problem is we just think that we shouldn't be in pain. And if you talk to anybody like 85 plus, they just can't understand that. Not because they're old, but because they never believed them. <laughs> you know, this, is, this idea that life wouldn't have any physical pain, they just don't understand that. But we no, have it millions is- of people who think. Yeah, it's interesting that you should bring that up because I was with my best friend Maggie yesterday. We were, we took the morning to clear out a storage unit. Her sister had passed in Georgia a couple months ago. And we I don't even know how we got on the subject, but both of us do not understand why anybody would not kind of be in charge of it because the way her sister passed was, was interesting, and I won't go into it, but – it was like she made a choice to just go ahead and die, you know, and she did. But mm-hmm. we we both have, and we've said this before, we are not going to go through our lives taking, you know, any kind of medication that has to be put into our bodies for the rest of our lives. I don't take any medication. Look, if you get sick in my, my house, you have Tums, <laughs> Benadryl, Bear Aspirin, or Cider Vinegar. That's it. If you need something else, you're going to have to go somewhere else. I do not want to have any kind of garbage that I have to depend on for the rest of my life. I'd rather stay healthy. That's a choice you can make. Yeah, it's a bold one. Oh, I made it. Yeah, well, we both made it. So, but I think that I mean, I think that 
the theme that we drifted into here is not that different from the one Sorry. I coach my clients on. Um, is that, well, you, whether it's persisting with growing a small business and, and food or beverage, you've got to, regardless of the kind of money you can raise, in most cases, if you're doing something relatively innovative that's ahead of the market by five to seven years, you're strategically probably better set up to not be chased by a lot of people, but you're also, you've got to have true resilience and endurance. And I just don't see that as often anymore. When I look around, I think um, people's idea of resilience is six months, not six years, or endurance. You know, And, and I think uh, it's one reason why I screen my clients so carefully, because I can sniff that out. <laughs> I don't want to work with people who don't have any endurance. Right? I, well, I, and that... Helping them doesn't. No, I, and I, I know you're going with that, but that leads me to ask you, when when you're growing something that way, the way that you just described, do venture capitalists, capital investors go, mm, I don't know if I want to deal with you? Because what you're describing sounds like it takes a lot of time, as it should, and a lot of money. So you definitely need investors. So is that becoming a problem you, because people just go, mm, so yeah, we can do this in a year? Pro- yeah, I mean, you you do need you do need capital to get you through the horrible years when your your profits don't pay for your fixed costs. Not to get into a dry business, it's a small business reality. Right? Big companies don't have to deal with it, but that that a small company starting out has to deal. With it. Um, and you need to be able to raise angel money to fund that. But the, the, see, the venture capitalists, they love the businesses I described. They just want to come in in the tail end. <laughs> oh. So, you know, like they love my book. They love my book because they're like, oh, right. maybe I can pick, I can hunt better now and I'll look for those skate ramp brands that James writes about. They grow exponentially and I'll buy some data and then I'll see, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a hundred guys out there doing it right now. You know, and fine, that's great. But they want to come in in the middle to the end part of that seven to ten year run because then it's only going to be three, four, five years. See, and venture gotcha. capitalists in America, they're willing to wait three to five years. They're not willing to wait ten. But they is the business going to be there? Compl- in, I mean, the the business they that they're, they're looking at is it going to be there? Well, see, that's why they like to get in when it's fifteen, twenty million bucks and growing really fast. Gotcha. Because it'll only, it'll only be a couple of years if they can give them, you know, $5, 10000000 million of money to keep the acceleration going, keep the growth rate going, and they feel like they can exit, right? So I think the challenge is that venture capitalists love my model because they know it predicts a brand that's going to be really valuable and sell for a high price, but they don't, they don't actually want to sit there from the beginning. No way. Well, that makes sense. That really does. Listen, we've got about 90 seconds left, and I want to apologize. I keep... I'm speaking over you, and that's not intentional. We have a bit of a lag, and I can't quite tell when you're through and it's time for me to jump in, so I apologize for that, but it's a techie thing today. We're having trouble with Ah. with the stream, so it it wasn't deliberate. So anyway, James, I think we covered a lot of the, the stuff that I wanted to cover, but for anything that we didn't cover, tell people where they can find you. Your book, by the way, is available if you have an Amazon Prime account and you have the Kindle thingy, you know, where you can read Kindle for free. You, I have it on my phone. <laughs> Kindle thingy, that's a techie term. Um, I have it on my phone because I borrowed it from Kindle. So that's good. You know, people need to, to know that. They can find it. But anyway, tell tell people where they can find you to learn more about what we're talking about. Well, you're welcome to go to my, my corporate site, premiumgrowthsolutions.com, if you want to learn more about what I do. If you know a founder in food, beverage, alcohol, beauty, whatever, who might you could use some extra advice. There's lots of resources there. Um, also, I want to mention my book on Audible. So if you have a subscription, use your credits. Have fun. <laughs> you can listen to this voice narrate the whole thing <laughs> Listen, it has been a fascinating conversation, and I I learned a lot of things that I had no clue about. This isn't really my wheelhouse, but I wanted to talk with you because I always want to learn new things, and I always, uh, you know, 
there's no no coincidence. I'm telling you about five minutes after we're done, somebody will email me and say, where can I find him again? I need to talk with this guy. It always happens. So thank you again. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes and Audible, Prime. I'm everywhere. We're absolutely everywhere. Just look for wherever you consume your business podcast. Look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. James, thank you so much. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 